1: jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio, and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Cheryl Sandberg is the chief operating officer of Facebook. Her life and career seemed pretty perfect up until about two years ago, when her husband Dave Goldberg suddenly passed away at the age of 47. The two had been on a trip together in Mexico, and Dave was working out on a treadmill at the gym, when he had a heart arrhythmia, and he fell, and by the time they got him to the hospital, it was too late. Cheryl spent the last two years grieving and trying to figure out how to recover, and as part of her healing process, she wrote a book called Option B, and it details how she's getting through this second kind of life that she never imagined having to live
0: never occurred to me Dave wouldn't hit 48. I will not live to be 50 as he would have just this year. And so I will never make another joke about growing old again, ever. And no one else should either, because we either grow old or we don't. And every day, every week, every month, every year is a gift. Now that doesn't mean we can remember it all the time, but when things are hard, remembering how lucky we are to be just alive brings a lot of, a lot of
1: meaning into our lives. I interviewed Cheryl for 30 minutes about her book and how she's learning to cope. She says resilience is like a muscle that you can actually strengthen with a little bit of time and practice. This is Success, How I Did It, and in this case, it's a story about Cheryl's recovery. I'm your host, Business Insider's U.S. Editor-in-Chief, Alison Chantel. Cheryl Sandberg is the Chief Operating Officer of Facebook, a company she scaled from no revenue, basically, to one that generates $8 billion in a single quarter. She's a best-selling author of Lean In and a new book, Option B, that details how she's recovering after suffering a sudden loss of her husband, Dave, uh, who was just in his late 40s. So thank you so much, Cheryl, for taking the time. Really a pleasure to speak with you.
0: I'm so glad to be with you. Thank you for uh, having me today.
1: Of course. So I wanted to open with a question that a lot of people Tend to mess up when they're talking with someone who's been through something terrible. Um, how are you doing today? Well, thank you for asking, and thank you for asking that way. Um, better.
0: Uh, grief, grief comes and goes; it ebbs and flows. I think one of the lessons of this for me is that there's no one way to grieve. Everyone does it in their own way, in their own time, and we all process process life and its challenges and its ups and downs as they come. But for me, acknowledging that people are going through hard things is one of the big lessons of this horrible experience. After my husband died, I found the standard American greeting of how are you to be a really hard question to answer. You know, how are you? Not good. No one says that. (laughs) Right. right? Adam wrote, Adam and I wrote in this book, and Adam did the research on it. The, The response to the standard American greeting of how are you is I'm great. And anything else is jarring. And I think when people are really suffering and we know they're suffering, that question can be a very difficult one. And inadvertently, I think without anyone meaning it, communicate a lack of empathy. How are you? Well, I just had chemo this morning. How are you? Well, my child's about to die, right? I mean, it's very hard for people to answer that question and not have the pain they're going through acknowledged. So how are you today has this, uh, has this implicit, I get it, you are going through something hard, you are living day to day, and it's a much kinder question.
1: Absolutely. Um, It's definitely a great thing to shine a light on, because it's certainly a mistake that I was making before. Um, And so, you know, I read your book. Me too. (laughs) Me too. I want to be clear about that. I made this mistake many times. Absolutely. And so, you know, I kept, I was reading your book, and I just kept thinking like, oh my God, this is so raw. It's I, I don't I don't know how or even why you had the courage to write some of what you were able to write because, I mean, you had your wedding vows in there. You had, you know, how you, how you found your husband. Like, oh my God, to live this on such a grand stage. And I think a misconception about you is that you want to be public like you don't. I think I read that the first version of Lean In actually didn't have any of your career, personal career stuff in it because you didn't want to be out there. And this was something you kind of walked into. so So tell me about that process.
0: No, it's absolutely right. Um, I remember when I first got promoted at Google, they asked me if I wanted to be on the website, and I said no. And the other women said no, and all the men said yes. So they came back to me and the other woman, and they said, well, all the women said no, and all the men said yes, so now it looks like we only promoted men, so we're putting you all on the <laughs> website. We're taking away, away that choice. But it's true, and when Lean In, when I first wrote Lean In, I wrote the first third of the book to, to hand in my first third, I thought it was fantastic. It had four pages on the Maasai matrilineal tribe that showed the research on how matrilineal tribes, the characteristics we normally associate with men are associated with women. Again, I thought it was fantastic. It had five pages on the study of college kids playing video games and what they found. <laughs> and my editors and, my, and Dave told me that you know this is a terrible book that no one will read because you're not putting yourself in it. And so I, I did put myself in it. And then when Dave died, if I could have unwritten Lean In, I would have done it because it was, I think writing Lean In is what made his death more public because we had shared more of ourselves and that was not some place I wanted to be. And then, you know, that early grief was so devastating. And it wasn't just that I felt so much grief at the beginning. It was that it was so isolating I used to drop my kids off at school, and people would say hi, and I'd walk into work, and everyone would chit-chat, and all of that essentially stopped, and people just looked at me like I was a deer in the headlights because they didn't know what to say, and they were afraid to say the wrong thing, which I understood because I had done this before, so they didn't really say much at all, and so I was coming to the 30-day period after the burial, which is the Jewish period of mourning for a spouse called Shalashim, and I just felt worse and worse, and so I, I did a post what I would say if I would be honest with everyone about how I felt, and then I went to bed the night before thinking, there's no way I'm posting this. This is too raw and open and revealing. And then I woke up the next morning and I just felt so horrible. I thought, this is not the end of morning. I could not feel like less like it's the end of morning. And I just said, you know what to myself? Not going to get worse, just might get better. And I hit post. And that sharing was one of the better things I did because it really changed the reaction of the people around me. A friend of mine at work told me that she had been driving by my house but never coming in. She started coming in, and I needed her. And strangers started posting what they were going through to strangers. And it didn't take away the grief, and it certainly didn't bring Dave back, but it did make me feel less alone. And I think that's really the path that led me to eventually write this book.
1: Yeah, that's great. And, I mean, I like one thing you talk about is the elephant in the room, and it's something – that's so surprising when you're going through something like this, I think, and you've seemed to have found this is that some of the people that are the closest in your life that you love the most and have the closest relationships with, just don't say anything about what you're going through. It's like, they don't want to bring it up. They don't want to upset you. um, And, and you certainly seem to have found that as well. Absolutely.
0: You know, I think, and I used to make this mistake before I used to think that if something was going, someone was going through something hard, if I brought it up, I was reminding them You can't remind me I lost Dave. You can't remind someone that their child is sick. You can't remind someone their dad went to jail or their mom is in trouble or they just lost their job. It's not possible to remind anyone of that. They know that. And so, you know, when people didn't say anything, I just felt like there was this huge elephant following me everywhere. And it's not just death. Again, it's all of those examples I just shared. And I think one of the lessons for me is that acknowledging pain is so powerful. Not sugarcoating it, not I know you're going to get through this because sometimes you're not, but I know you're scared and I know this is hard and we're going to get through it together. The power of acknowledgement
1: and the power of we not you're going to get through this. We are going to get through this. And how do you deal with the anger? Like that is kind of a trait that people don't realize might come up when you're going through something like this. But anger is a common feeling um, when you're going through grief.
0: Yeah, I, I had read about this. I had heard that when people lost people, there was anger, but I definitely experienced it a lot more than I was prepared for. And anger was not something I'd ever really felt in my life. And it was, I was not prepared for it. And, you know, someone would say the wrong thing and I would burst into tears. Someone would say the wrong thing or the right thing at the wrong time. And I would be like, that's not helpful. Um, One of my closest friends, I I did that. I said, that's not helpful. And then I felt bad immediately. And I said, I'm so sorry. And she put her arms around me and she said, I'm angry too. Mm. You can be as angry as you want with me. She said, I'm going nowhere. I'm angry too. And, you know, still to this day, when when I do have those ebbs and flows of grief and it comes back, there is anger to it. And you know, I'm angry that someone took Dave from me or the world took Dave from me. And, you know, my rabbi told me to lean into the suck. Not what I meant when I said <laughs> lean in, but very good advice. And it is, it's leaning into the negative, leaning into the anger, leaning into the, the sadness and getting rid of what I think of as the second derivative. Okay, I'm angry. Of course, I'm angry. My husband died. I'm not going to be angry. I'm angry. Okay, I'm sad. I don't have to be sad. I'm sad. Trying to get rid of at least the second derivative of it, I think, would be very, what is very, very helpful advice for me.
1: So let's talk about some of your recovery and returning to work because your career has been so impressive and such a big part of your life. So how long was it before you were able to get back to the office? It was pretty immediate, wasn't it? The grief counselors I spoke to advised
0: me to get my kids back to their normal routine and back to school as quickly as possible. So 10 days after Dave died, they went back to school. And I went back to work in a pretty modified schedule. I was at work when they were at school, and I drove them and picked them up every day, so I left pretty early. You know, let's start with I'm really lucky to have that flexibility, and most people don't. Most people get very little, like three days or no paid time off for bereavement. And I think that's something we absolutely need to address. We've Facebook had really good policies before, but we've extended them even further. And I've had lots of conversations with other companies. I'm hopeful that other companies will also think about how long it really takes to just even deal with the logistics of a death. But when I came back, yes, it was soon and it was hard. And it was soon and hard for my kids to go back to school. I think for us, home was worse. Definitely my kids said school was super hard and they took cry breaks and they had moments where they couldn't get through it, but it was definitely better to get out of the house, see their friends, have something else to focus on. For me too, getting out of the house, and it, even if I couldn't fully focus in a meeting, if I had 10 minutes of focusing, that was 10 minutes I wasn't thinking about Dave. And that was a relief. There's a woman I talked to for the book whose story is in there who said that, you know, her, she went to work the day after her husband died. And she just said she couldn't be at home. She literally could not be in her home that she shared with him. And she felt she wasn't working at Facebook at the time, but she felt incredibly judged by coworkers. You would think you wouldn't want to be here. And we just have to respect that there are some people who are going to want to come back right away. Some people are going to want to, you know, hide in their homes. Some people are going to want to not be in their homes. We have to respect anyone's process as they go through this.
1: So one thing that you mentioned there is for the people that um, actually do that, there are people who do want to come back to work and need the distraction. And then there are others who need the time to grieve. And you just said that you helped extend Facebook's bereavement policy. Do you think that companies should have like a grief leave the same way that they have maternity leave and paternity leave like that widespread?
0: Yes, that's what we have. We have bereavement leave, And we offer now, we've doubled it, so it's half of this before, but we used to offer 10 days for immediate family and five days for extended family. So, immediate family at parent to child, et cetera, extended family and grandparent. And now it's 20 and 10. So, no one's thinking we recover in 20 days, but 20 full days off is, you know, a good time to get yourself, you know, a little more ready to come back if if people want to take it. And 10 days is a nice amount of time. We also offer paid family medical leave that you can take really for any reason and unlimited sick leave but i also think we need to take into account the full range of needs people have maternity and paternity should be equal and long we're the only country in the world developed country that doesn't have paid maternity leave and paternity leave is just as important paid family medical leave so that you can take take care of a parent a child a grandparent you know whatever you need to do and i think I think we're short-sighted when we don't invest in our employees as companies and as an economy because we invest in them and they invest back in us. And so I think we need far better corporate policies and I think we need far better I think we need far better public policy. I also think we need to take a hard look at what companies do for the family when someone dies. Hmm. Our coverage, both financial support, extended assistance with a lot of things, financial assistance for someone who's working here and they they pass away their family is very extensive and you know i've gotten a lot of notes from people who said you know i read your book and my spouse died and i was cut off from everything in my in in his company or her company 24 hours later and that's just bad corporate policy i think we have a responsibility not just to the people who work for us but to to their families
1: that's great um well so one person that seems to have helped you quite a bit through this is Mark Zuckerberg and I know you all have worked very closely together for the last two years but um, some of the things you described doing with Mark I was like oh man I can't even imagine doing that with my boss ever and I guess you guys are more of peers but uh, you know he and Priscilla took you to a beach after Dave died to kind of help you get your mind off it and there would be times that you would call him after work when you felt like you made a fool of yourself in a meeting and be like ah no Cheryl you would have done that anyways. Um, So it sounds like you know he was really a good friend to you so I'm just curious about how you got to that point with your relationship with Mark and how he's helped you here.
0: Mark's just a remarkable person and a remarkable human being. And Priscilla is just the most warm, loving, lovely person. And together they're an incredible, incredible couple. You know, I think Mark and I set out from the beginning, we knew we'd have to work together very closely and so we set out to have a very close working relationship, but it became a friendship very quickly. Even before I took the job, uh, Mark and Priscilla and Dave and I went out for dinner. And I was thinking about taking the job, and Mark was so well-known. So we, we like went to a restaurant where no one would notice us or see us. Um, the four of us spent time together. And we became friends early. And I'm lucky for that, that we had both the personal friendship as well as the deep professional relationship. But a lot of what Mark did as a friend was super important and a lot of work Mark did in the office, I hope everyone can have personal friendships, but even if you don't have the kind of depth of friendship we had, building someone back up, telling them they made a good point in the meeting, telling someone with cancer, I still believe in you and think you can contribute here. Anyone can do that just as a boss or just as a colleague. And I think. People have a lot to learn from the example Mark at. and to be honest, I don't know how he knew this. I didn't know this. He did a bunch of stuff that I certainly never thought to do for people uh, I worked with who were grieving, and it's it's
1: a pretty it's a pretty incredible story. So one question I also had for you was: Have your career ambitions changed at all? Like, is, does work still have the same importance and meaning in your life now that I'm sure your whole life has been turned upside down?
0: It does. I mean, you know, and this is part of the story I told about Chamath, um, who was an early I love that. No longer at Facebook saying you need to be, you know, ambitious still. Definitely at the beginning, I thought if I could get through the day, that was about all I could do. Um, I definitely wanted to keep my job. I, I knew I wanted I wanted to um, still work. I, you know, could picture Anytime I pictured myself at home alone without Dave, that was a bad bad thought. <laughs> and so that really mattered. And a lot of people feel that way, both for financial reasons and for fulfillment reasons, that they want to be able to hang on to the other parts of their lives. When one thing falls apart, you don't want everything to fall apart. Um, but for me, my job is more, is, it really is more meaningful. I mean, I had heard about, told, my friends told me when people passed away that Facebook became more important to them, but experiencing it myself was a totally different thing. And I, um,
1: what, what we do here really matters to me and I think matters even more. Yeah, so the Chamath story that you're referencing, Chamath is, you know, he was an early Facebook employee and he's now gone on to be a very successful venture capitalist in Silicon Valley. And he said to you, he came over to your house, kind of intruded and said he was going to take you for a walk. And then he said, get back on the mother effing path. Um, so what did that do for you? Like where were you before and and what is that ambitious path he's talking about for you?
0: I, I think everything I was saying is I'm going to live through the day. I'm going to like get my kids to bed tonight. I'm going to make it home from work in one piece. And what he said was, you know, you know, well, what are the big things you're working on at Facebook and what are your big goals and dreams? And I just looked at him like big goals and dreams, you know, get through it. And he said, no, no. You still should have big news. And he said, his Dave would want that. Dave would not want your dreams to die with him. And it was, it was permission that I could still have other parts
1: of my life and still dream big
0: for my company, for my kids, for myself.
1: So, I had a couple of um, career questions for you. I was hoping I could sneak in since you did write Lean In um, and you're now, you know, going back to having an ambitious career. So, one thing I had for you is um, what were the steps looking back that you think, we have a lot of millennial readers, um, what were the steps that you made in your 20s that made yourself able to succeed so much by your 30s?
0: (laughs) Well, I think all of that I tried to put in Lean In. Um, but I think it really was about getting on a rocket ship, taking taking being willing to take risks and do something that, you know, I hadn't done before, like work in technology, and finding the ways to start believing in myself. One thing that's worth thinking about if you're in your 20s and you're a woman particularly, but we have men too, are lean in circles. There are 33,000 all over the world. We grow by almost 100 a week, and we hear over and over again how much they work, because they give women an a explicit place to be ambitious and to support each other. None of us get through anything alone. I'm a big believer that we have to commit to things and make them a regular habit in order to make, to make them work. And an explicit place, particularly for women to dream big, is really important.
1: So you talk a lot about resilience, and resilience is a muscle that you can kind of build up. What is the best tip or advice that you have as someone who's had to build this muscle over the past two years. How do you do that? Two things that I think matter gratitude
0: and joy in gratitude. It's ironic, but going through the worst thing of my life, this huge tragedy made me more grateful. Never occurred to me. Dave wouldn't hit 48. I wouldn't live to be 50 as he would have just this year. And so I will never make another joke about growing old again, ever. And no one else should either because we either grow old or we don't. And every day, every week, every month, every year is a gift. Now that doesn't mean we can remember it all the time, but when things are hard, remembering how lucky we are to be just alive brings a lot of, a lot of meaning into our lives. And joy. Adam suggested that I write down three moments of joy every day. And at first they were really small. Had coffee. It tasted good. My son gave me a hug without being, being asked. Maybe hinted, but not asked, right? But by paying attention to those moments of joy, I write them down before I go to bed. They became much more meaningful to me and I noticed them throughout the day. And I realized that before Dave thought I went to bed every night worried about what was wrong and what I was gonna mess up on the next day. And so I don't think I was living to its fullest. I don't think I was grateful for that day or looking for the joy. And All now right. I'm trying, and I can't say I do it every day, but I am trying to be grateful for each day and look for the joy.
1: Well, thank you so much, Cheryl, uh, for sharing all of this with us. And um, the world is rooting for you. Oh, well, thank you. Thanks for listening to Success How I Did It. For more episodes, subscribe on Acast or iTunes. You can also check out more interviews that we've done with the founders of Tinder, Bleacher Report, Warby Parker, and more.